evening. It's wonderful to see everybody here tonight. We're glad to have you. Well, back with a new suntan from vacation, help me welcome Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. <laughs> Well, I want to tell you about one of my favorite things to do when I'm on vacation. <laughs> That's right. One of my favorite things to do is to 3D print things. Remember how with a normal paper printer, you put the paper in the printer and you send the file and the printer prints out the picture that you sent it, right? Well, a 3D printer is the same idea, only it doesn't print out a flat picture. It prints out a whole object. And this is pretty amazing. In fact, uh, some of you might remember a little robot called ACD2. This is a robot that we developed for the Acellus STEM2 course. It's a really neat little robot. Well, I want to show you ACD2 number one, the very first one. <laughs> when I heard we were going to do this, but before I had hardware, I got out my 3D printer and I printed one out because I wanted to see what it was like and try it out. One problem, he didn't win the beauty contest. So <laughs> it looks a little different than that, doesn't he? But it's the, the same basic idea. 3D printers are amazing because you can take almost any shape and print it out. Well, there's another really big problem with 3D printers, and that's how long it takes for them to print out. And uh, this guy took all night and the next day to print out. Luckily, I didn't have to sit there and babysit it, you know, I just left it running while I did other stuff. But still, that's a really long time. Well, some researchers in Switzerland have a new type of 3D printing process that is really amazing. They can print objects in less than 30 seconds. That's pretty amazing. Uh, to understand this, I want to explain a little bit of how 3D printing works. You have a machine that has a roll of plastic. It looks like wire and it feeds into the machine and it's got a hot end that heats up that plastic and it draws the first layer, like drawing a picture. And once that's done, it goes up a little bit higher and draws the next layer on top of that. And then a little bit higher in the next layer. So it draws the whole thing one layer at a time. So you can break it down into individual images. Well, that's not how this new process works. If you uh, look at this picture, you can see this is something that they printed out and it's uh, really high uh, accuracy. It's 80 microns accuracy, which is pretty good. And then uh, they can only print kind of small things right now, and I'm going to explain a little bit of why. You'll see how it can do this process without drawing individual layers. They start with a special liquid, a rosin, that's light sensitive. So if you shine a bright enough light on it, then it hardens into uh, the shape that they want. And then they put that liquid into a spinning jar, and it spins around. And as it's spinning, they have a laser that shoots light at the jar just the right time, different spots as it's spinning, and it starts to harden that rosin. And they do that to the whole jar all at once, not one layer at a time. That's the thing that's so different. They're um, basing a lot of their principles on something called tomography, which is usually a way of 3D imaging where you take the different ways the light reflects and everything and put it together to make a 3D object, where they're kind of doing that backwards. They're shining the light just the right way as it spins to harden the object. And uh, the neatest part about this, like I say, is that it works in under 30 seconds. I want to show you what it looks like. Now watch this. You can see how uh, nothing really is happening, but the light's shining on it, and whoa, oh, you can see it starting to materialize. And it's almost done, down to the last few seconds. Just in a few seconds like that, we have a little miniature of Notre Dame. There it is. And it's pretty accurate. You look at these little teeny tiny pieces, you can see that, that that's pretty good accuracy, isn't it? So what applications might this be good for? Uh, one of the big applications that they're uh, pursuing is for biomedical situations. Uh, one of the problems with the normal 3D printer where it does layer after layer is it doesn't work good with really soft materials. And a lot of the materials that we use in, uh, for example, organs and things are really soft. 
But if you can do this process inside of a liquid like that, then you can print really soft materials extremely accurately. So they've actually 3D printed some flexible uh, arteries and things like that. And even though they're really teensy, they're really detailed. So this might have some really neat applications for 3D printing uh, organ replacements or things like that. A lot of times when they're making uh, a new organ from scratch, they'll have a scaffold, they'll print a scaffold or use a scaffold from uh, existing heart, for example, and then grow the living cells on that. And so applications like that might be more possible with this. And if you think about it, compared to a normal 3D printer, it's inside a closed jar where it can be sterile, which means that they can print the whole thing and have it still be sterile, which is really good if you're going to put it inside of someone, isn't it? Another neat application might be at the dentist, right? You know, you need a little filler or a tooth or maybe a retainer, something like that. Well, they can scan your mouth, and then they can print it. And if it takes under 30 seconds instead of, you know, a day or two or three or four, then that would be a really useful application, wouldn't it? So there are a lot of neat things like that they can do. The only thing I'm concerned about is uh, if I can print things in under 30 seconds, I'm going to print a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that might be a problem. We're going to have to think of how we control that. Um, <laughs> Because it's kind of addictive, you know. You make something on the computer and then pop, there it is in real life. Amazing stuff. Well, 3D print is, is exciting, and I'm sure that it's going to be around in the future. And that's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you. Okay, now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. Well, good evening. Tonight we're going to talk about an innovative light switch that would transform displays and televisions. And I'm, I'm not talking about a three-year-old on a chair. Night, day, night, day. No. Um, no, this, this, I mean, it's really a way to control light, and it would change our displays forever. So what we're talking about are LCD screens or displays. Now, if you look at this picture, you can see uh, on the left we have a classic big old television. Uh, it's, it's very big, it's heavy, it's deep, and then on the other side, a flat screen, a much flatter screen. So this is an old television and an LCD monitor. LCD, which stands for liquid crystal display. Now, that just sounds magical, you know. <laughs> something on the black market or something. Hey, I took steel 80 fairy wings to make this liquid crystal. <laughs> no. <laughs> but liquid crystal, what is liquid crystal? Well, we know we have, we know we have gas, liquid, and solids, the three states of matter. Well, we're going to talk about someone named Friedrich in 1888 who noticed something. Now, he was a botanist and a chemist, and he was studying a substance, and he noticed that it seemed to have two boiling points, not boiling points, it had two points of liquid, okay? He, he started bringing up the temperature, and it became a liquid that was cloudy, and he increased the temperature, and it became a liquid that was clear. And he noticed that they were different. So it was this cloudy state and that it was a clear state. And what he had just found was liquid crystal. And it's basically a fourth state in between liquid and solid. So you've got the solid side and you know those, those pieces, those molecules are fixed. And then we get to liquid and the, the molecules can move around freely. Well, in the middle with liquid crystal, those crystal molecules they have some flexibility, they can kind of move around, but they keep some order to them. It's kind of like a box of matches. All the matches are in the same direction, but they can move around, but they're gonna keep organized, pointing the same way roughly. So liquid crystal. Well, not much was done with it. Uh, one of the things that they did notice is that liquid crystal would flip polarized light. And that's gonna be really important, so important that I wanna show you we're not going to, tonight isn't about polarized light, but it's really important. So I want to show you, make sure we understand what polarized light is. Now I have, this is from a camera filter. This is a polarized filter. And basically, we can imagine if light was traveling in a wave, we get light from the sun and other places that it's bouncing off of. How is that wave tilted or oriented? Is it like this? Is it like this? Is it anywhere in between? Well, it turns out 
if you get light from the sun, you've got waves turned all over the place. So if I have a filter, a polarized filter, it's basically lines, tiny lines in this filter that only allow light waves that are going the same orientation as those lines on this filter. So if the lines are like this, only light waves that are going like this can go through it. If I, aha, turn this way, all of those waves cannot get through. Okay, so to show you, um, I'm going to have, I'm gonna point this at the camera here so you can see it. Whoa! Okay, so I'm going to put my filter in front of this light, okay? So it's not gonna be too effective, but we've got my filter in front. Now that's not doing much. So what are we doing? We're limiting all of the light that you're seeing to one wave orientation. Now I'm gonna have the cameraman put a second filter on. So not much happened, but now I'm going to start turning mine. And let's see if I have it flipped right. There we go. So we, we're gonna turn off and then I'm gonna turn it and let it come back. Now, these filters are not perfect and I'm not exactly still, but we're getting the general idea. What's happening? Well, basically, we have both filters like this. And so we are limiting that light this direction. Then I start turning one and the light goes away. And if, if I had two polarized filters right here by each other and I turned one, I would disappear through them because that light was limited to one direction and then the other one turned and none of the light is going this direction because it's all that direction, so you can't see anything. Now, why is that important? Well, again, liquid crystal can flip polarized light. So further down the road, they would discover something called pneumatic twisted molecules of this liquid crystal. And basically, if you studied it, if we had two polarized filters and what they figured out was, what if we had two polarized filters put liquid crystal in between, okay? So we have the liquid crystal and polarized filter. The light hits the polarized filter and it's going like this. Okay, we're gonna put the other filter on this side turned the opposite way. So it's gonna be black like what we saw. But then we're gonna put liquid crystal in between and if you looked at the molecules of liquid crystal, it looks kinda like these stick molecules that are stepping in a twisted spiral like that. So they're going one to, 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 to up like that. So they're literally bending the light and taking it to this vertical point that the other one was at. So it comes in, it's all straightened to one direction and then the crystal takes it and turns it to the other direction, okay? Now, why is that a big deal? Because then if we put electrodes on either side of the liquid crystal and put a voltage, those molecules, all of this, the beautiful spiral turns flat. And so now all the light that was trying to come through and then flipping up, it stays flat because all of the liquid crystal molecules, that beautiful spiral's gone, okay? So what if we took that, put it into a pixel, okay? So we have the polarized filter, we have liquid crystal, we have the second polarized filter. If we add an electric current, it turns off. We can't see through it. If we turn it on, or if we turn off the electric current, we can now see, okay? So let's, if we look at this picture here, this kind of shows you what's going on with the twisted liquid crystal. Now this, if, if we think about it, if you look at this picture, so this is basically a mirror, and then each of those little points that are black, those are the shape of the electrodes. And when they put a current or voltage on that electrode, all of a sudden, the, the light cannot reflect through that point, so it becomes dark. And this turned into a major breakthrough of how to make a display. And they took this further. Okay, instead of a mirror, what if we have a light and the light shining out? Only when we put a current on it or a voltage, the light can't get through. And they didn't just do that, they took a step further and they broke that out into three colors, red, green, blue, and those are sub-pixels. So if you zoom, 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 zoom in tight on a screen, you, you can see something like this. So we can see the sub-pixels and each of those pixels within there, there's two polarized filters and the liquid crystal letting that light change from one polarized direction to another and come out until there's an electric voltage and then it's gone. So pretty amazing stuff and allowed things to be shrunk down into something much, much smaller. Of course, you know, watches, calculators, um, all of these displays using electricity to be able to show or display something. And of course, what will come later with the LEDs and the technology now we're going far and beyond uh, what they found with LCDs. So pretty amazing stuff. All from 
this botanist chemist guy who found something in the 1800s waiting until somebody figured out what to do with it. So you never know what's waiting to be discovered. Thank you. And now, introducing Dr. Roger Billings. Bad news. Bad news? Bad news. I've already told him everything I know. <laughs> That's not true. So tonight, <clears throat> since I have told you everything, I'm going to turn time over to her. We have a few questions for you tonight. Oh, no, I already no, told him these everything. Are, yeah. <laughs> you ready? Uh, <laughs> Tobias, could we see that to polarize light one more time? <laughs> could, could we see that? Maybe we could do a science fair project. <laughs> see, you've got more ideas, don't you? No, I, I'm nervous about the questions. Yeah, come on, yeah, come on up here. Yeah, here he comes. That's a, oh, that'd be great. We need the filter. Excellent. Oh, and it comes with a <laughs> flashlight and a filter. That's excellent. Um, do you have another filter? Okay, so do you want to run the flashlight or the filter? I want to run the flashlight. Okay. <laughs> do you know how to turn it on? You know what? I don't know. Mm. Apparently I do. You do, huh? Okay, so what you got to do, see that red light up there? You have to point at it like Toby did. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, that's pretty good. Wait a camera guy. Okay, so now <laughs> we put one filter in front of it, and it's blocking all the light except one polarity. And then we put the other one here. And as I turn it, you, cool. if I can get it centered, here we go, centered. Look how you can turn that almost completely off. That's amazing. It's just because the two filters are there. Amazing. And if you turn it, it doesn't block any. Can you explain that to us? And that's polarization? Is that what Toby was saying? Polarization. So when you get polarized glasses for fishing? What you know, once mean? I read about a polarized bear. <laughs> <laughs> and their fur is not really white, is it? Okay, so it's kind of about fingers in it. You know, you have these fingers with slits in it. Fingers. And so if, the, if a wave is coming like this, it can get through these slits. If it's coming like this, it gets blocked because they're narrow. Okay. And see, these slots go the other way. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. And so the only thing that can get through is nothing. Unless they're turned the same, everything can go through. I think it's pretty neat. It's really It neat. shows that light does come in waves, and it can be blocked. Which brings up the other point I wanted to make. This is like a science fair project, uh -huh. right? What's our hypothesis? That's what I was wondering. <laughs> if you get them lined up just right, then there's, the light doesn't go through? You're right. This is too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's move on to 3D printing then. <laughs> Did you hear Dr. Jones say that with this new technology, you can print anything you want, even soft tissue? I did. What would you like? I would like a Dr. Peugeot. Oh, goodness. <laughs> with a personality to match? How do you do that? Maybe <laughs> if you print your own, you can choose the personality. <laughs> and you know, nice. instead of taking the emotional, social uh -huh. course, uh -huh. we could just uh, send them a Dr. Peugeot. Yeah. And they, they could just have the course right there. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. No more filming. Can you imagine a world full of Dr. Peugeots? <laughs> I, think, I think one is enough. <laughs> Don't you? Some people say that's... <laughs> okay, now about that question you wanted to talk about. Yes, one of our students wants to know how light was created. And uh, did you answer them? <laughs> no, I saved it for you. Okay, good. Well, I think for the next few minutes we're going to learn how light was created. 
<laughs> she knows, she's an electrical engineer. She knows yeah, about I'm, light. Doesn't, no. Do you want to know the other questions? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Were there other ones uh -huh. too? They want to know if you're an alien as well. As well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I was printed on a 3D printer. <laughs> <laughs> Light. I want to know how light was created, actually. All right, well, tell them. Well, if I want to know, it's my question as if well. If you want to know, it. how was light created? Yeah. Did, it, did they hear about the Big Bang? <laughs> I think they know about it. Yeah, the Big Bang. Isn't it fascinating that scientists uh, have studied the, the universe and they've noticed that there are all these stars and galaxies and planets and everything. And when... Uh, when they measured what direction they're going and how fast they're going, it's like everything in the universe is just flying apart like a big explosion. And so they think if it's flying apart and we know how fast it's going, well then we can back up and figure out where it came from and it all came from the same point. And so they say that the universe began as a big bang, it all started. And why did they say that? Because how else could it have got like this? Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, we, we really don't understand it very well, but you've heard of the Hubble telescope, haven't you? Yes, we have pictures from that. The Hubble is uh, a telescope that is up in space. It was launched in space because when you put a telescope down on the Earth, the atmosphere of the Earth, the oxygen that we breathe, causes distortions in the light, and so the images are all kind of blurry. And so they said, if we could get a uh, telescope outside the Earth's atmosphere, we'd get a better picture. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting. Telescopes are uh, instruments that have a magnifier so that the light that comes in from the stars, for example, can be magnified like a, like a microscope. But when you start magnifying that light, it gets so dim you can't see it. And so they put a great big lens out in the front of the telescope so it can get a lot of light, and it focuses it into the eyepiece. And then later on, someone got clever and realized, instead of a big lens, what if we had a great big mirror, a curved mirror, so it would focus all the light back to a point? It's almost like a dish. Mm -hmm. And that's a reflecting telescope. Well, uh, I've always loved telescopes. They're, yeah. they're really, really neat, and especially the big astronomical ones. Uh, I had uh, a wonderful experience with a telescope. Um, I had my own little toy one, which was a lot of fun, and with my telescope, I might be able to see the moons of Jupiter on a clear night, or the moons of Saturn. I can see the rings around Saturn. They're beautiful. But uh, at the university near my home, there was a big telescope on top of the building that uh, had a door that would open, and it would point around at different places in the sky. And I finagled a friendship with the guy that was doing research there at night. I go every night, and He'd let me use the telescope while he was reducing his data. But the, the telescope image was always just a little fuzzy. And someone invented this really neat technique of shooting a laser beam up through the sky along the side of where the telescope was looking. And the laser beam would be distorted by the atmosphere. And then they had actuators in the reflector that would try to compensate for that. It made the image a lot more clear. And then they started putting telescopes up on top of mountains, like Mount Palomar. used to be the biggest, I think it's a 200-inch mirror, wow. big telescope. And, and then in Hawaii, they've got some way up high. And then came the Hubble. And the idea of the Hubble was we're going to take this great big telescope and we're going to launch it in a rocket out into space. And because there's no atmosphere, we'll be able to see things we've never seen before. And we'll be able to find out about that Big Bang. We'll mm -hmm. be able to learn more about how everything started. So they spent a ton of money. 
And they built this huge telescope and they put it in rockets and they launched it out in space. And they turned it on and they took their very first image of deep space. Deep space means looking way out there with a powerful telescope and it was a big blur. Oops. <laughs> you ever made a mistake? A lot. Somebody didn't take a solace math. <laughs> and they made a slight error in their calculation when they were designing the lens. That'd be embarrassing. That was kind of embarrassing. Yeah. And so the angle was off just a little bit, and they couldn't focus the picture. So it was just a big blur. And I thought to myself, that's the most expensive blur in history. <laughs> when you think about it, there it is, and it's up in space. And everybody felt bad. I mean, we're talking millions with a B. It's, it's a lot of money. And so some clever person got the idea that what this telescope needed was glasses to fix it. And so they made glasses for it, and they actually sent the astronauts up in the shuttle and, and the Hubble's on a kind of a difficult orbit to get to. Hmm. But they went up at the Hubble, and they put in these special glasses, of course, lenses. And then when they pointed out at the stars, uh, the images were just spectacular. If anyone hasn't taken the time to go look at images from the Hubble telescope, you really need to do it. It is so amazing, so precise, so sharp. Now here's one that we just happen to have. Uh, the images from the Hubble, can we see some other ones? They're beautiful. Yep, uh, that one are. on the left is a, <laughs> <laughs> it's a nebula. It's the butterfly and, and nebula. Galaxy. But there is a butterfly nebula. I know. But it's pretty. the Hubble could take these light images coming from deep, deep, deep in space and see them sharply and precisely and clearly. And so they mapped the sky and they found a place where there were no stars. It was a dark spot in the sky where there was nothing. Mm -hmm. And they figured, well, if we point it right at that dark spot, it's between all the other stars, then we can see farther out because there's no light to block it. So they put the telescope on that point mm -hmm. and they let it sit there for a period of time so the very very faint images could be picked up by the telescope. And they not only found a star, they found galaxies of stars. They found billions of stars in that one single little dark space in the sky. And it, it's so much bigger than anyone ever imagined, than we ever could have thought. Now, how did the Big Bang start? Where did it all come from? How did it happen? Well, the Hubble telescope was named after a guy named Hubble. And he made a very interesting invention that made him famous. He ran one of the big telescopes out in California. And he made a telescope, and he was a good friend of Einstein's, by the way, but he made a telescope, excuse me, an observation on his telescope that was really, really fascinating. If everything started at a very small point, and it exploded, and the universe got bigger and bigger, then at some point, the gravity of all of that matter is going to stop the motion. Like if you throw a ball up, it goes fast, but as it gets higher, it loses speed, till it actually stops, and then it starts falling back down. Well, that's exactly what would happen with all this matter scattering out through the universe, and so, Hubble, Dr. Hubble, thought it would be very interesting to find out how long the universe has left before all that matter stops and starts crashing back together in what would be the big collision after the Big Bang. Big Bang to throw out, big collision to come back. And so he measured it, and he found out that all of these stars and galaxies all over the universe are not slowing down. They're speeding up. And scientists scratch their heads. How can that be? 
if all that matter is moving faster and then it's moving faster and then it's moving faster, there's got to be some energy accelerating it. It takes energy to make heavy things go faster. And the amount of energy that would be required is an astronomically large amount of energy. And that's when someone said, well, the energy that's making that all expand like that is hidden from us. We can't see it because it's more energy than exists in the whole universe. And so someone very clever, I don't know who it was, was it you? Someone <laughs> said, it's dark energy. Dark because we can't see it. We don't know where it is, but it must be there. And that all says to me, we've got a lot more to learn about this. A lot more to learn. We, we learn a lot. Uh, when I was a, a, an elementary school student, I had a little book about astronomy. It had pictures of the planets, and it had pictures of what it was like on the moon, and what it was like on Mars, and the galaxies. But all of the pictures were painted by an artist as a best guess, because no one had ever been to the moon. I'm older than the moon. Older than the moon. Well, at least older than people going to the moon. And no one had been to Mars. And we'd looked through our funny telescopes. We didn't even have a Hubble out in outer space. So we could see it, but it was kind of fuzzy. And I, I just think it's really fun because that whole book is completely out of date now. Because now we actually have real photographs of all these planets. And right on Mars and right on the moon and, and all these different places. And we've learned all this stuff. We know so much more about astronomy than we did. And when the Hubble came, we learned so much more. And what we found out is there's so much more to learn. That's what I was thinking. If we didn't have the Hubble telescope, we wouldn't know of all the beautiful things out there. We wouldn't even know. We wouldn't even know, and we'd be sitting here without knowing that. And then I realized there must be a lot more like that right now. Uh, it's really fascinating. You know, uh, we talked last week about uh, sonic booms, remember? And we talked about sound and how fast it goes. And if you go faster the sound, you could yell, you could run your little tricycle with that special motor That's right. out in front of the sound, <laughs> and you could hear what you said. Yeah. Hello, and you could outrun it, and you could hear yourself say hello. Like time travel. Kind of like an echo <laughs> off of a mountain where mm -hmm. it echoes and comes back. Well, light is like that, except it travels much, 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 much faster. But the interesting thing about these images is they come from so far away that the light started its journey towards the Hubble telescope not a year ago, not a thousand years ago, not two thousand years ago when they were writing the Bible, but millions and even billions of years ago. And it is so long ago, and, and we don't even know if those stars are still there. because They could have been gone for 500 million years, we wouldn't know, but we know that they sent that light out clear back then, and that's kind of fascinating. Okay. Scientists think it's neat because they're saying if the light started coming here 14, 7 billion years ago, well, then we're seeing back in time. We're seeing what existed 14 billion years ago. And if you think about that, this is an inter interesting mind experiment we could do. If you want to see what you did yesterday, mm -hmm. then get that tricycle of yours, turn it into a spaceship, go shooting out in space faster than light, get ahead of the light, and you'd be able to see the light coming from you yesterday, because that light's still going out. Yes, yeah, so that is a twisted mind experiment. Actually, no, it, it all makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Well, the, it's because you have thing, a brilliant mind. The thing that a lot of people have tried to figure out is uh, how did this Big Bang take place? What, what caused it? What was it like before? Because everything, uh, this light and even Dr. Peget, everything was a result of that explosion. That's how everything came into existence that we know about. 
the air we breathe, everything. And uh, some people, a lot of people, believe that there was some supreme power mm -hmm. that did that, a creator. And uh, some scientists say, well, if there was a creator, why can't we see him? Maybe we don't know where to look. I don't know. But I, I think it's important in uh, learning about science that we remember a couple things. And, and one of the most important is every time we learn something, we then are able to understand that there's two more things we don't know yet. The amount of knowledge to be uncovered and discovered is growing faster than we're learning, and that's exciting. The other thing that I think we need to remember in science, and I hope you'll all take this very serious for just a minute, and that is part of what we don't know is how it all came about. And there are a lot of people that have beliefs they hold very dear, and those should be respected. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and who's right? I mean, the details of how it happened, to be real honest, nobody knows. Nobody knows yet. But uh, something very powerful caused this universe to come into existence. And as we, can we put a Hubble picture back up there again? As, oh, look there at this one here. This is the butterfly one. nebula. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is a photograph of space. That's perfect. There <laughs> are such beautiful things that are here to see in this universe. And you know, um, last night I was looking out of my office to the west as the sun set. And the sunset was just glorious, beautiful colors, the way the sun shined up on clouds, and it, it was a gorgeous, colorful view. I mean, it was very, very inspiring. Uh, soon we're going to have spring and the flowers and the grass. and This is a very beautiful world. Mm-hmm. We're very, very fortunate to yes. have it. And everybody has their idea how all of this came into existence. Some of us just say, well, we just don't know. But it's fun to have your own hypothesis or theory. And when you're talking about how things like this started, maybe, maybe it's more than a hypothesis. Maybe it's a faith. Maybe it's a belief. Uh, I personally am one of those scientists that believed there was a divine force. There was a, a creator that made this all happen. I, I just don't see how it could have happened any other way. It's too amazing. And uh, so that's exciting to me. But a lot of very brilliant scientists would disagree with me on that, and I respect their opinions. I would probably uh, agree with them, but then we'd both be wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> So, wow. <laughs> so the Big Bang started out with this massive explosion, according to the best scientific theories of our day, and that's where all light began. And when you, uh, you turn on a television and you tune to a channel where there's no station, you see what some people call white noise or pink noise, and it, on the screen it's just going to snow. That actually is some of the energy left over from that Big Bang that's still floating around the cosmos. So you're actually seeing where it all began. And that's where all the light came from. Wow. Uh, people that really studied the theories that were developed by Professor Einstein uh, started to believe that there could be a very strange phenomena in the universe where there would be a, a place of such intense gravity that light coming out of that place wouldn't be able to get away because the gravity was too strong and would pull it back. And somebody very cleverly named that a black hole. And why would it be a black hole? Because whatever light was in there, we couldn't see because like these filters block the light, well, the gravity would keep the light in. So things could go in, but nothing would ever come back. And people said, well, if all that matter and light is going in there, where's it going? And oh, there are 
so many wonderful ideas and theories about that. But uh, it is really interesting to me to see the fact that we're now finding that there are black holes in the center of all these big galaxies. Do you remember what a galaxy is? It's a very large group or family of stars. Mm -hmm. And we're talking billions of stars. And some of them are kind of like a donut. Some are more like a, a pinwheel. But in the heart of these big clusters of stars, we're finding ginormous black holes. And the fact, I mean, if they found one, that, that would be really interesting. There's one right there. Look at that. Can you tell which one that is? I should. I don't know which one mm -hmm. that is. Which one is it? The closest, we're in a, a cluster of stars like that, or a galaxy called the Candy Bar. I mean, the Milky Way. <laughs> maybe we're, that was Andromeda. We're in the Milky Way. And if you go outside in a dark place, maybe out in the country on a dark night, you can see the uh, crowding of stars going across the sky that is the Milky Way galaxy. And we're inside the galaxy, so you're looking out. And as the Earth turns through its, uh, its year so that you see out a different direction away from the sun, you see it goes all the way around us because we're in the middle of it. The closest one to us is the Andromeda galaxy. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, here's something that's really interesting to me. And I, I, I'm not an astronomer, even though I love space. But I... I do have a lot of opinions, <laughs> and I'm, I'm open-minded about it. Some of my opinions have been wrong. Let's see, there was one. What was that? <laughs> but um, I'm very fascinated by the fact that you have this big collection of stars, and then in the middle of this galaxy, you have an enormous black hole. By the way, there's little black holes in other places in the galaxy, but there's this big one. And I believe that those black holes are part of what a galaxy is. I think we have a lot to learn about that, and they're tied together. Why would there be one in every galaxy we've been able to study if there wasn't something significant about them? So a lot to learn. The light comes from each of those stars, and the light that's in the star, the, the light that is in our sun, is light that comes from hydrogen atoms fusing together to make helium and giving off energy as a byproduct. That's where all the light that we see. The light in this room tonight is from electricity, but the electricity was generated one way or another by nuclear energy, but I don't think so here, so probably by the sun. And there are, there are solar farms where we have solar collectors that get sun. There are big wind turbines, and wind turbines are capturing energy from the wind, but the wind moves because the sun eats the air. So wind energy is really from the sun. There's some from hydroelectric, big dams up in the mountains, and the water runs down through and turns big generators. But the water is lifted from the ocean by the hot sun, and it rains down, so that's solar. And then there's things like coal and like natural gas and oil that is in the ground. But those are deposits of plants that grew because of the sun's energy and then decayed, and we, we drilled down and, and found them. So all the light here today is coming from our sun, and the light from the sun is coming from hydrogen atoms doing their thing. That's <laughs> why so I like hydrogen. <laughs> Hydrogen's doing yeah. Did you know, this is an astounding fact, it's a beautiful fact, but most of the atoms in your body are hydrogen? Mm. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. It's, it's really nice. Yours too? Oh, yes. By all means. Why not? Okay, now, what about those questions that we were going to get into? Well, um, speaking on light still, okay. one of your students wants to know if um, there is different light and space that we don't have here. 
That sounds like a really good question for Dr. Thomas Iyer. <laughs> okay, I won't pick on slides. I, I don't know the answer to that. What, what do you think, Thomas? Do you want to come up to the microphone and give us a little speech on life? <laughs> I want to introduce you guys to one of the smartest people I know. Come on up, Dr. 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 Okay, uh, Dr. Thomas is one of our really, really wise uh, professors here. In fact, he graduated from this International Academy of Science, and uh, we gave him a diploma because he became smarter than us. <laughs> but he's, he's a really, really intelligent person. So would you like to ask him that question? So Dr. Thomas, the students and I want to know if there's different light out in space than we have here. Well, <laughs> the last time you were there. <laughs> uh, the atmosphere does only let certain wavelengths of light through. And so there are, um, I don't know if you want to call it light necessarily, but like gamma rays and things that would um, be poisonous to us that our atmosphere blocks that are out in space that it's just like I said, so that's smart it is. <laughs> Good. You know, that was a really unfair question. But uh, it was really, really fun to put you on the spot. Uh, everybody that uses a cellus has to be thankful to this man because he's the guy that keeps all the servers working. He and his team, he's in charge of all the cellus data centers. And uh, the reason that they never go down <laughs> is because of him. And uh, he has done a phenomenal job. You know, there's always things that go wrong with the internet. Uh, sometimes the power goes off. So to make sure that if the power went off, a solace wouldn't stop, he put this big UPS, uninterruptible power supply system with all these big batteries to keep it running. And so what happened? <laughs> when the power didn't go off, the UPS shut down. Yeah. What, three times? Yeah, so that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Here's this thing to make sure the power never goes away because if the power goes off, this thing will stay on and keep us running. And it kept turning off and knocking out our whole data center. That's true. And fortunately, Thomas was ready and switched to our other data center. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a real challenge, hasn't it? Yeah. And it's amazing the things that he's done in this last year. Uh, Acellus has grown so fast that it's been mightily challenging to, to keep this up and keep it as well as it is. And I, I think we all ought to thank this guy. I'm very grateful. To him. Thank you. I'm going to be in trouble for a long time for that. <laughs> well, you know, um, Dr. Iyer has an, an amazing gift and skill and ability in working with computers and, and doing amazing things. A lot of the special features that we put in Cellus that a lot of other people haven't been able to figure out how to do, he did. When we want something really hard, we just call him. <laughs> and he does it, doesn't he? It's good. Do you think you got a good education here at the Academy? I do. Do you know some of the guys that are watching over the internet tonight are going to follow your example? Um, here's something interesting that I gave him as a challenge, what, six weeks ago? We have more and more and more students watching with us on Wednesday night. And, you know, first we had 50. Wow, 50 is a lot of guys. And then it was 100. And, and pretty soon we had so many that we ran out of capacity. If anyone else hooked on, the whole system would burn out. So we moved over to a service that would do that for us. 
And some of you know this past year that service had a lot of problems. We, we hired them to deliver these uh, lectures live and uh, we also back them up so you can watch them later. But they kept going down. They couldn't handle all the students we have. And uh, what do we have on account tonight, Tina? What are we showing live? It's coming in very slowly. And the data is arriving <laughs> Not at the slower speed of light. <laughs> than the speed of sound. Okay. So about just just about fifteen hundred people tonight. And I told Thomas, uh, you know, we're, we're really limiting who we feed this to. I don't know if any of you knew that. We've got a lot of students on the Cellus, but we've kind of limited this just to uh, the people in the mentoring program at Acellus Academy. But some others have shown interest. And so uh, I asked Thomas to fix it so that I could have as many as I want. And he says, well, maximum, how many might you want? What'd you say? A million. <laughs> there you go. Go and sell us. Can we do a million now? Yeah. He actually has built it up now so that we can have a million people watching at once, and I want to try that. Let's go for it. So we're going to start inviting more people to join us, and if we can get a million people, then we'll know if he redid his job. He says it now will handle a million people. I hope the feed was really good tonight. If it wasn't, email him. Yeah. <laughs> we all do, right? Yeah, he's done a really good job. So we have a off the wall, um, and this, this is some students and myself, and it's a social emotional question for you. <laughs> we wanna know how to use the scientific method to better ourselves when we are trying to um, get over the tendency of being annoyed by someone. We really want to be better, but we... I, I don't think you're annoying. <laughs> <laughs> we really want to be kinder, but then, you know, we, we, have, we go for it in the attitude that we're going to do it, and then we don't make it all the time. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? Well, I'll be nicer next week. Okay. <laughs> you know... Um, we each have ownership of our own personality. We get to decide what we're like. You ever thought about that before? I mean, you kind of start out like what you are right now because that's where you are right now. But what you're going to be like tomorrow is something that you have control over. Now, it's like uh, when I used to be a baseball star. In Peanut League, which is before Little League, <laughs> I was a pitcher. Oh, yeah? Yeah, in about Yatal. And so <laughs> I would practice pitching. And as I would wind up and throw that baseball, I would try to hit a very small area target, which was called the strike zone. But it was very hard for me to do at that age. And so I'd practice and practice and practice. And over time, my my target was able to get smaller and smaller because I became more accurate and I developed. But it wasn't just because I said I want to. I had to really practice and make effort. When it comes to a personality, it's kind of like that. It's something you have to practice at. It's hard to always respond the way that you want to. There is a thing in, I think, all of us uh, that they call emotion. Mm, yeah. And emotion is when you react differently than you wish you had, sometimes. Yeah. And little things trigger our emotions, kind of like uh, he lit my fuse. And I got really angry, and I really told him how I feel about it. I'm not looking at you, Matthew. <laughs> anyway, so um, it's easy to respond well when everything is sunny and blue skies and all as well. But when it's stormy, when there's thunder and lightning, when anything goes wrong, that's when we really find out what our personality's like. Mm -hmm. I think if people take a minute just to realize my personality is in my hands and I get to shape it into what I want, but realize that, that it's going to take some real effort to become the kind of person you want to be. 
first you've got to decide what your goal is. And then you've got to work at it. And every time you succeed, wonderful. When you don't, you need to figure out why and fix it. But uh, the people that are most happy in life, I think, are the ones that treat other people well. And so you could say it's kind of self-serving if you want to really be happy and live an enjoyable life, well then, be nice. What if we really, really have that goal of being nice, but then we're not? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a real problem, people. That's not a problem. <laughs> because in Asilis, we have a special course. <laughs> yeah. And it's called Emotional Social Education. Uh-huh. And let's see, we've now got it for what grades? Number two. That's we're still working on it, aren't we? Yeah, it's exciting. middle and high. We have middle and high right well, now. Well, we're working on it. We okay, have elementary. Okay, we have elementary on, on yeah. the new one. I have to tell you, those of you that are in elementary, you really need to take the new one. And those of you who aren't, you need to send her messages and tell her to please get it released. They want to She's know how to contact filmed. the teacher. It's really, really good. <laughs> yeah. Uh. There's a lot of ways to contact the teacher. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that uh, interaction with the, the teachers is done in a very interesting way in Acellus. We're, we're trying to figure out how to give the best education to our students possible. And we're trying to do it without any money from the government. And we're trying to keep the cost of it in control so that families can afford it. And in our wonderful government-supported schools, they have a lot of money to hire lots of teachers, and, and that's wonderful. But we have to figure out how to leverage the teachers and, and make them very effective. And so when, uh, when you need some special touches in Acellus, in what we try to do, we have the best teachers, the very, very best teachers, and so we identify from watching how you're doing in a particular lesson, or we look at the messages you send in, or the sessions, and then we try to create a special fix for that, usually in the form of a special help video. And it's interesting, uh, some of you have inspired a lot of help videos. (laughs) But we figure if you're gonna struggle with a concept, well then someone else is too. And so we go out and we try to really, really get it refined. It's interesting, though, if you're trying to answer a problem and you just don't get it, and we have uh, a teacher work with you one-on-one, which is very, very expensive, especially if you have this many students, you do it all the time. What we found is it doesn't work. If you're not getting it, it's not because you need the teacher to say, what the answer is, giving you the answer doesn't teach you how to do it. And we found that there are real reasons why you're not getting, and we go find out what those are and fix them. Sometimes you need a little bit more pre- preparation to be in the class you're in. Sometimes you're doing well in the class, but this lesson you didn't get, and we go try to figure out why and fix it. But it's, uh, it's amazing how much progress we're making in Students that are really applying themselves being able to do well. Now, our teachers are doing more and more direct interactions. Some of you have discovered the video conferencing feature that we're, that we're starting to use and test, which allows you to have live conversations to help. But we found that tutoring that way isn't very productive. We're a lot better off if we figure out the real root cause. We don't want to help you through this lesson we want to help you succeed in life. Mm-hmm. And that's the point of view that we're, we're taking of things. And it's, it's very wonderful. Okay, we're out of time. But I want to thank you for letting us 3D print you. <laughs> yeah, I give you permission. Huh? Wouldn't that be great? I actually um, will end by telling you a little secret. Okay. Um, I went to a conference in Las Vegas and they had an amazing laser machine that would shoot two lasers into a piece of acrylic plastic and then burn a little spot, and they could build a 
burn a 3D image inside a, a solid block. It's a little bit like your 3D printing, only this was just printed inside a solid block. And so uh, I asked Dr. Peje if she'd go over and sit there, and they scanned her with their laser, and they printed her inside this block. It's really neat. It is. It's one of my best souvenirs. <laughs> it was neat to see yeah. it happen. And all she had to do was sit I there. Sit there. I had to pay a lot of money for it. <laughs> <laughs> Those conferences, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much. And I'd just like to say on the parting shot tonight, we talked about this universe, this place that we live, and it's amazing. It, it couldn't is. be more beautiful. It couldn't be more wonderful. And... I think the most beautiful and the most wonderful thing in this universe is you. And you think about it, it's, mm -hmm. it's the people. That's what really makes it wonderful. Thank you. Have a good night. Well, thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.